Hello and welcome back to the YWAM Kona podcast. Today we have another episode of our Revival and Reformation series. Today Andy shares with us about John Wycliffe. Let's jump right in. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Overall, such a remarkable story um, that we don't know near enough about. You know, you don't hear hardly. I don't know. Had any of you ever heard a teaching on Celtic Christianity before, you know, before he shared on last Monday? Anybody? Which is so wild because the 300 years that Celtic Christianity was really a force, maybe even 400 years, one of the most unbelievable movements in history and it's not even talked about anymore you know and doing everything that we are aspiring to do now they did in the three and four and five hundreds AD from you know unbelievable centrality of worship and prayer did did uh, Christoph go into some of that some of their prayer rhythms and rituals and and then the mission sending stuff that they did they were the missional wing of the Catholic Church in their day there was no real missions happening outside of the Celtic um, believers and they were a force. They they were so effective everywhere they went. And then of course I don't know if he talked about, but they're really credited with helping to preserve um, education as we know it. Did he talk some about that? How the Irish saved civilization? Incredible book. Thomas Cahill um, talks about how they preserved education, learning, reading books in a time when all that stuff was getting destroyed, burnt. Um, this was the beginnings of the Dark Ages, you know, so a tough time in Europe's history. So super fun. And then today uh, we're going to be talking about a man named John Wycliffe. Anybody know much about, anyone read anything on this guy's life? I'm just curious. Raise your hand if you've ever read a biography or anything, a little bit, a little bit. We've got some like kind of hands, okay? All right, well, um, I am by no means an expert on John Wycliffe. Um, but I am going to just go over with you guys a little bit of an overview of his life, okay? Incredibly important person in, uh, in the era that he lived in, and I'll expound a little bit why. But I do want to say again, for a hope that you're kind of getting a little bit of a hunger for history, I was so pumped to see this book right here in the front row. This is a phenomenal, the whole God's General series is like such a great way to um, to start to get into history because it's really accessible. There's shorter chapters. Um, they all deal with a different person or a different era in history. But my hope is um, that as we talk about this, you just get intrigued with history in general, and you want to jump in a little bit more to like, what did God really do through the centuries and through the decades? And it's it's remarkable. And I do feel uh, a little bad that we're skipping through so many things because obviously we went first 300 years, which you know to spend. Uh, 45 minutes on that is an injustice, but it's helpful. And then, you know, we went from 300 and we didn't really, I don't know how much Christoph um, drew the dots from the first 300 years to what Patrick became, but it, it really, the bridge between those two things was the Desert Fathers. And it was these people that disappeared in the wilderness, mostly of Egypt. They were mostly Coptic. And, um, and really escaped from the growing institutionalization of the church and went, no, no, this is about an intimate mystical relationship. They became later known as the mystics. And the Celtic Christians, which really started, of course, in the UK, were an offshoot of the Desert Fathers and an offshoot of Christian mysticism that was growing in North Africa and the Middle East and incredible movement. I spent probably three years only reading mystic authors, trying to understand like what happened in the era of the Christian mystics, and it was mind-blowing. I mean, there is just an unbelievable shining lights throughout those hundreds of years of history where we mostly 
have images of the corrupt Catholic church. Well, in the middle of that, there was always a remnant and the remnant was radical. There was always a radical intimacy-based, you know, somewhat evangelistic, walking in the supernatural power of God remnant through all of those years where, as we dive into this morning, even you got to know that the Catholic church of the, you know, thousand AD is not the Catholic church of your friend down the road that really loves Jesus, right? The Catholic church of that time was deeply corrupt, and we're going to get into some of that, but there was always a remnant on the edges of Catholicism. There was still always a remnant. Um, some people you should know about that we don't have time to get into would be like Bernard of Clairvaux, um, an unbelievable leader in kind of the uh, renaissance of, of uh, mysticism in the midst of the the rigidity of monasticism. Another was Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross. These were phenomenal authors um, and leaders of their time that had tremendous impact. So I feel bad that we're skipping past a lot of that, but there's just not enough weeks. It would just take you know a full three-month school to even do justice um, of going through some of this stuff every day. So we are going to fast forward and we're going to fast forward to the 1300s, okay? So we're moving through a whole bunch of history, a whole bunch of good history, a whole bunch of hard history. But I think the thing for you to know contextually is we get into the 1300s, that the church is deeply political. It is not only the religious authority on life, but it is also the political authority on life, which is part of the reason when the pilgrims first came to America, one of their founding values was the separation of church and state, which didn't mean that the church didn't have influence into the state, but it meant that it had limited influence into state, and it meant that states certainly had limited influence into the church, and that's partly because of this era of history. So when you get into the 1,000, 1,100, 1200s, 1300s, you need to picture, um, again, there's always a radical remnant on the fringes, but a lot of mainstream Catholicism, which is really the only form of Christian faith other than the Orthodox stream, which breaks off in 1100 AD, is it's hierarchical. Popes are like emperors. Popes rule over whole regions of the world. There's deep financial corruption. Um, there's deep sexual corruption. There's deep political corruption. And the Roman Catholic Church is, is by and large a giant corrupt organization that is extremely wealthy and has lost its first love. Now, that's not the people's fault. That's mostly the leadership, right? And that was mostly the priesthood. And as I get into some of this, and next week we're going to go into Jan Hus or John Hus of uh, Bohemia or um, Prague. You'll see that as well. And, of course, we get into Martin Luther, you will, you'll feel it strongly. Important to know that. Again, that's not, 90, that's not 99%. That's not the common person. But it is the leadership of the church at this time is, is quite corrupt. So we're going to jump in here. And uh, the the person we're going after is Wycliffe. Most of you would know the name Wycliffe from the well-known translation organization today. Well, Wycliffe traces its roots back to John Wycliffe. It's named after this man, and I'll explain why as we go through this this morning. So many of the ideas fleshed out by Martin Luther and future reformers were ideas of John Wycliffe. Uh, he was teaching a hundred years before them. He was before the printing press. Therefore, many of his works were burned by the Roman Catholics, and they weren't distributed because there was no printing press. So everything John Huss, or sorry, Wycliffe wrote was handwritten. 
and you know could go as far as his handwritten copies could go, but there's no printing press yet. So he didn't become near as well-known or famous as Martin Luther because Martin Luther lived during the era of the printing press, which was the first time in human history that mass media was possible. In fact, they say that Martin Luther was the first media influencer in human history. He was the first multipliable mass media TikTok influencer in human history was Martin Luther because of the printing press. So Wycliffe lives before that. Most of you never heard of him because that, because his, his works were not able to be mass published. Number two is he was condemned by the Roman Catholic Church, which he was Roman Catholic, and much of his works were burned. So he wasn't as well known as Martin Luther and even John Huss, though he was called the Morning Star of the Reformation. So you could write that down. If he had a name, it was the Morning Star of the Reformation. He was the beginnings. Much of Martin Luther's work, John Huss's work, John Calvin's work, Zwingli's work, all these um, uh, reformers, they trace their roots back to the writings and the revelations of John Wycliffe. Uh, his impact and his seeds changed history forever. He's born in 1330, if you're writing some of this stuff down. And uh, we don't know much of his life before he turned 30 years old, but at 30, he was now working at Oxford University in England, and this is most of where we know what he accomplished, what he did in his life. We do know that in 1349, and you'll find this as a theme throughout history, is that half the population of England was wiped out by a plague called the Black Death. We know now that it was the bubonic plague, and it was spread through fleas on rodents. But imagine 50% of England's population was killed by the Black Death. So this was during Wycliffe's uh, 20s. And, uh, and there is enough writing to know that this was a time in his life where for Wycliffe, who is now a trained priest, he turned to the scriptures because he was one of the few. The priests were the only ones that could even read the scriptures because the only language that the Bible existed in was Latin. So, of course, you had Hebrew and Greek manuscripts, but the only popular language the scripture is written in is called the Latin Vulgate. And this is the only authorized sacred uh, scripture that the Roman Catholic Church um, that they have um, that they have condoned, and um, it's nobody speaks Latin. Latin is a dead language, maybe understood a little bit in Rome, but it's not even the language of Rome. The language of Rome is Greek and 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 other languages that exist in that place. So, this is part of the issue. So, uh, but Wycliffe understands and is trained in the original languages as well as Latin. So he turns to the scriptures, and this becomes in the midst of the bubonic plague. This becomes a catalyst to the future of his life. One of the things you're going to find throughout Wycliffe's life that I think is a major lesson for us today is that he always turned his crisis into his greatest opportunity. We view crisis as a dead-end street. In Wycliffe's life, crisis became the open door to the thing he was actually meant to do. And um, part of what I want you to see in Wycliffe's life is the importance of being biblical leaders is that crisis is not the end. It's not a dead end. It's not the end of the story. Crisis is an open door to a whole new chapter of life. And that's what Wycliffe showed. So this, what was, you know, tragedy in England became an opportunity for Wycliffe because he began to turn to scriptures. He began to, at the same time, expose some of what he saw in the Catholic Church. I'm going to kind of outline some of those things, the corruptions he pointed to. At first, he primarily spoke out against the political power of the Catholic Church, which was ruling over nations. And secondly, their excessive wealth. This immediately got him in trouble with Rome. However, and this is part of history, I don't know if, how much you would have read some of this, is that there was always animosity between the Church of between England and the powers in Rome. 
And there's a long history of, of animosity between the monarchy of England, which is why eventually England became Anglican, because that was their version of the Protestant church, because they always resisted the papal authority, or like the, the authority of the Pope in Rome. And they were like, we're, we're not, we don't belong to you, right? They kind of always had this rebellious edge, which was really worked to their favor. And so because of that, the English monarchy protected Wycliffe from Rome's, um, you know, attempts to basically snuff out his influence. The English liked him because he theologically backed up their, their troubles with the Catholic Church. In other words, they're like, we like Wycliffe. He's exposing the Catholic Church. We don't like the Catholic Church. And yet the Pope still ruled over England in this, t- in this time. So they defended Wycliffe. You'll find this in Martin Luther's life as well. He was defended by the royalty or the, um, the leadership of Germany because they also didn't agree with what was happening in the Catholic Church. So there was a bishop in London. This is kind of an interesting story who was eager to climb the political and religious ladder, Catholic bishop, um, by becoming you know, loyal to the Pope. And to do that, he wanted to deal with Wycliffe once and for all. So his, his, his route to more power in England is, I'm going to deal with Wycliffe and this, this heretic, right? But he faces off against one of the leaders, the royalty in England, who is a friend of Wycliffe. So they call for a meeting to decide whether Wycliffe's a heretic or not. Can you imagine this is how they dealt with problems? And Wycliffe's there, hundreds and thousands of people are able to gather, and it's two lawyers essentially facing off to argue about whether Wycliffe is actually a heretic or not. So these two, they, they come into the meeting. This is so funny. I love these details in history, though, because you realize these what seem like super dumb little things are massive in terms of their implication in history. So imagine they come to the council, this, you know, arrogant, you know, snotty, like um, exclusive Bishop of London is out after Wycliffe. He just wants more power and more money. And then this guy who's defending Wycliffe, who's royalty in England, they start their argument. Wycliffe walks in, takes a chair And the accuser is like, Wycliffe needs to stand. He's on trial. And then his defender goes, no, he's going to sit down. And then the other guy goes, no, he's got to stand in trial because we're going to accuse him. And he goes, "Uh uh-uh, he's going to sit down. And they start arguing about whether Wycliffe should stand or sit. Well, the arrogant accuser who's just trying to climb this ladder mutters under his breath that he's going to take out the defender. Well, the defender is deeply loved by England because he's royalty and England loves him. And they hate this guy because he's just... He's just, um, you know, pious and arrogant. They hear, a few people hear him mutter under his breath that they're gonna, he's going to take him out, and it starts a riot. And so the people start rioting, and this guy has to flee for his life, and Wycliffe never gets tried as a heretic because of it. Never says a word, and the, the trial doesn't go on. So Wycliffe is able to continue on with his work. It's as if God defended him. A second summons happens now, and Wycliffe answers the charges for the... Um, for the first time publicly. So now a second, this is years later, a second summons happens. The, the Catholic Church hates this guy because he's denouncing their greed and their power. And this is known as the first time that someone took a public stand against the authority of the Pope and said, this man is not infallible. And you got to know that they literally believe the Pope was infallible. He could make no mistake. What he said was gospel truth, right? Well, Wycliffe takes a stand and goes, I refuse at the risk of my own life to uh, go against what I now believe in scripture. He refuses to cave on his convictions and he denounces the Pope as fallible. And this in essence, guys, you need to know, we're all the way back in the 13, you know, uh, 1350s. 
and Martin Luther doesn't come till the 1500s. We're 200 years before the Wittenberg Chapel in the famous 95 Thesis. This is the moment that begins the Reformation. This moment when Wycliffe stands up and says the Pope does not have absolute authority and he is not infallible, this begins the unwinding of this corruption. And this is part of why Wycliffe is so uh, influential in history. So, moving on. The challenges of the church. I want you to get a picture of what the Catholic Church is like in Wycliffe's day by knowing what he challenged, okay? His influence continued to grow, and so, do his, so did his boldness. He was denounced by the Catholic Church as a heretic, but none of the English royalty would enforce it. So they're protecting him, and he is continuing to get louder and louder. He's writing more, but these are handwritten, and it can only go as far as his handwritten copies can go, and other people handwriting and copying his copies, right? But these are the things he began to denounce the Catholic Church for. Number one was confessionals. He looked at this and said, this is, not, um, this is not biblical. And all of his things went back to the scriptures. He goes, there, is no, there needs to be no person between the confessor and God. Jesus is the great high priest. Therefore, to have a, a person that we think we have to go to for the forgiveness of sins, he goes, this is not biblical. This is not what Jesus died to release on the earth. He tore the veil, and humans can have the ability to go straight to God through Jesus Christ for their forgiveness. So he begins to speak against the uh, act of confessionals. Now, this laid the groundwork for what Martin Luther was famous for. Do you, what do you, anyone know, like, one of the primary phrases that Martin Luther is famous for? What did he establish that basically we lived on, we lived on for the next 500 years? Anyone want to take a guess? Any thoughts? What's that? Say it loud, sorry. Yeah, his letters, but there was a phrase, there was, there's many, but there, there's one thing, if you were to summarize Martin Luther's life, you could boil it down to one of these phrases. Uh, yeah, but this one specific phrase, I, I know I'm, I'm fishing here, but I'm just giving you a chance, I want you to interact a little bit. Yep, and he called it essentially the priesthood of all believers. So this laid the foundation. No one had ever said that sentence before. And Martin Luther is the one that coins the phrase, the priesthood of all believers, right? And of course, it's biblical, but it got recovered in a sense by Martin Luther. It's a biblical phrase. Paul is the first one to really lay it out in the book of Romans. But Martin Luther grabs a hold of it. Well, this is the foundation for it when Wycliffe begins to denounce the confessional. Second thing he does is absolution. Absolution was the belief that a priest was the one who forgave the person of sin. So you'd go to the confessional, you'd confess your sins, and the priest had power to either withhold forgiveness or give forgiveness, right? This is the Catholic Church of their day. So he begins to denounce that, saying God alone can and needs to forgive sin. Third one was the sale of indulgences. Anyone know what indulgences are? Anyone heard this phrase? Someone tell me what it is. The sale of indulgences. I saw a number of you nod your head. Now I'm, now I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> Yeah, and how did, they, how did they do it? You had to buy it. So literally, priests would travel around, and they would sell forgiveness. And particularly, you could sell forgiveness for your dead relatives. So you could, you could purchase forgiveness for dead relatives. And this sounds so absurd to us, doesn't it? This was common practice. This was absolutely normal. This was done all across the Catholic Church uh, for the most part. And Wycliffe is one of those who first ones to stand up and go, this is not biblical. The fourth one was the need for preaching. I love this one. Wycliffe looked at the church of his day, and most of the priests had never read the Bible because it was only written in Latin. And even some of these priests weren't educated enough to learn Latin. 
So many of the priests would just tell stories. It was more like Aesop's fables. It was more like, you know, good analogies, but they never read the Bible, so they couldn't teach the Bible. So Wycliffe begins to denounce this and go, the only source of truth, solo scripture, which, you know, were, was a, a major tenet of the Reformation, but again, goes 200 years previous to that, to Wycliffe, is that, we, that the priest had to be teaching the scriptures. That's number four. And number five, and this is the one that got him in the most trouble, was his belief on the Eucharist and transubstantiation. Anyone know what transubstantiation is? Yes. Yeah. Anyone have Catholic, grow up Catholic in here? Like you did. Okay, that's why you knew. Anybody else? Was Anyone else grow up Catholic? So did you, you grew up in the Catholic church? Yeah. You went to a Catholic high school. So you know all about this. So the first four, I'm going to take you through history here, Wycliffe began to denounce these things, and the, the clergy and the, the, I should say this, the academia, Oxford, looked at this and went, Wycliffe's right. So the Catholics of England looked at this and went, we're going to defend Wycliffe, this is right. When he crossed the line into going against transubstantiation, his friends stopped defending him. They just went, you crossed the line. But he could not, and he was unwilling to bend in his convictions of what Scripture says. This is the teaching of transubstantiation. It's the teaching that when the, specifically, when the priest blesses the elements of the bread and the wine, that they turn into the literal body and blood of Jesus. So the teaching of transubstantiation is only the priest could do it, which he's attacking mostly the priesthood and all of these things is that when the priest blessed it, that bread became the literal body of Christ. That wine became the literal blood of Christ. Now, most of the Catholic Church today would still teach transubstantiation, okay? And, um, but Wycliffe looked at this and went back to his scripture and went, there is zero biblical evidence that this is literally the body of, of Jesus and literally the blood of Jesus. But what he's partly getting at is that the belief in transubstantiation limited that only the priest could then actually give the Eucharist because only the priest could turn the body and the blood into the, the bread and the wine, right? Or the bread and the wine into the body and the blood, right? So he's mostly attacking the doctrine, and with it, he's attacking the notion that only these select few people could actually offer the communion, and they could decide who could take it or not. But he also looks at the doctrine of Scripture and goes, there is no biblical evidence. He says, you've got, and he basically goes to understanding of for, you know, metaphors and similes. Like, it, it was like the body and the blood. It's spiritual. It was a mystery, but it's not literally the body and the blood. When he crossed this line, even his friends stopped defending him, and there's an incredible lesson in this. Now, let me keep going, and I'll double back to that lesson. Wycliffe went against the grain of the culture, and he began to mentor a group of young leaders and send them out as evangelist teachers and pastors. They were called poor priests. These were his circuit riders of his day. These were the circuit riders before the circuit riders. These were the Bangor priests of uh, Patrick's day that he sent out from Bangor, Ireland, not him, but his followers, Coomgall and Columbanus, sent out these Bangor priests all over the known world. Well, now, hundreds of years later, um, Wycliffe's doing the same thing. He goes, the clergy is corrupt, the priests are corrupt, the Catholic Church is corrupt, and he goes against the grain of society, begins to pull young leaders to himself, teach them the Bible, and then send them out. And in a countercultural way to the wealth of the priesthood of his day, he, they called themselves the poor priests. And they went out and they taught the scriptures, they evangelized, and all over 
carrying the messages that Wycliffe had taught them was unbelievable strategy. Secondly, this is his, these were two strategies he's employed, he employed that, that led to tremendous effectiveness, is that all of Wycliffe's accusations against the church came from his in-depth study of the scriptures. The more he studied the Bible for himself, the more convinced he became of his convictions. He became convinced that the Bible was the sole source of truth and all doctrine, which you need to know at this era, that was not true. The Pope was equal to the scriptures in his authority, and the early church fathers were equal in authority to the scriptures. So the teachings of um, Origen, an early church father, were equal to the teachings of Paul, okay? That was the belief in that day, and, and Wycliffe grew in his convictions that all truth relates back to the scriptures as the sole authority. He began to grow in his convictions that everyone deserved to read and study the scriptures for themselves. You got to know, nobody believed this. We're, we're not talking about like there was a cultural idea brewing and then a leader grabbed a hold of that and was like, I'm going to trumpet it. That's most of what we've seen in the last couple hundred years. A cultural revolution was brewing, and a leader rose up and said, I'm going to become the voice of the revolution. Wycliffe's concept was revolutionary, and no one was talking about it. These are the leaders that have shaped history most of all. He was so innovative, no one's talking about it. He had so much original revelation through his relationship with Jesus. He goes, no one's even asking for this. No one's even talking about this, but I have conviction in my heart that this is the only thing that can change history. This is the only thing that can lead people into salvation was the ability to read scriptures on their own. Yeah, anything. Yes, and literacy is huge, but even those who were literate didn't learn to read Latin because it wasn't even, it was a, it was a dying language, if not already a dead language. Yeah, Latin today is a dead language. Doesn't, you know, nobody speaks Latin as a mother tongue. So, yes, illiteracy is massive, but the literate even can't read the scriptures. So, these were his two innovations. His poor preachers, instead of going through the channels of the top down, the clergy, like, I'm going to start at the top and figure out how to change it, he goes, I'm going to start at the bottom and I'm going to shift society. And I'm going to do it by raising up these poor preachers, and I'm going to do it by an emphasis on the reading of the scriptures. Now, he's not begun to translate the scriptures yet, but he's about to. Bless you. Now, what I want to say on this first point, when he crosses a line to teach on the Eucharist, and even his defender, remember the guy I told you about and tell you all these names because you're not going to remember them, the guy who defended him saying he could sit down, that guy who is his closest defender said when, you, when he began to teach on the Eucharist this way, he goes, I can no longer defend you. Oxford University, who was, he was the shining light of Oxford University, said, you can no longer be on faculty here. You're, you're done. Like, your influence is over. He lost everything when he crossed that line. And this is the temptation, guys. This is so important for us today. His first four complaints, they all went, yeah, we're with you. But... Wycliffe wasn't just living for the culturally accepted revolutions. And those were only culturally accepted by Oxford and a few of his friends. Rome hates him. They want to kill him. But, but his friends around him go, we're with you. You're right. But his conscience couldn't be clear unless he spoke the whole truth. And for us today, it is so much easier to agree with the culturally acceptable revolutions than to actually agree with the whole witness of Scripture. And we often are as revolutionary as it doesn't cost us everything, doesn't cost us real influence, 
doesn't cost us real friendship. And I'm not necessarily talking about in the room, though maybe if you get conviction on this, run with it. But look at our modern-day construct of Christianity, let's just say in America, where you've got a whole bunch, and don't think a name here. It's, you know, I'm, not, I'm not for just like naming and criticizing people. So don't think a person here, but think a spirit. The spirit of celebrity Christianity is I am gonna I'm gonna go after these three, four, five things that culture for the most part still agrees on, and they really have to do with love for the most part. And they're biblical, they're very loving. But then we stop when it comes to crossing the line for something that's not culturally acceptable and yet just as biblically true. And then we set up our camps around those culturally acceptable truths that are a little more easy to swallow. Let's just say the love of Jesus forgiveness. They're biblical. They're true. You don't have a gospel without those things. So we've got a whole modern construct of Christianity that has set up its camp on that, but go, I'm not really going to address abortion because it's not culturally acceptable. And we, it's, 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 um, it's theological adultery is what it is. It's, it's like, it's theological unfaithfulness to go, I'm going to be faithful to these things that are culturally acceptable but I, I'm cheating on the truth when it comes to cultural norms that aren't acceptable. And when Roe v. Wade passed in America, it never became more evident where you had silence in all of these leaders who were so loud when what they were trumpeting was culturally acceptable. And then silence around something that Jesus is really loud about. It's called the sanctity of life. Every life, Right? No matter the culture, no matter the age, no matter the ethnicity, no matter the social economic background, no matter the illness, no matter what, the sanctity of life. And Wycliffe is a hero because he hit the wall of cultural acceptance and knew if he crossed that line, he would lose everything and refused to compromise the truth for the sake of his influence. Friends, this is so important as young leaders in the era that we live in right now. Are we living for influence or are we living for truth? And are we willing to jeopardize the truth for the sake of influence? Wycliffe goes, nope, I won't. I refuse to do it. I've got to do the whole truth. And I said abortion, but you could do a hundred different topics on that. Do you know what I mean? Gender, like what, what, why aren't we preaching about the Imago Day in the church today? We, we have the truth on this and it could set a lot of people free of suicidal thoughts and of all kinds of self-harm and all kinds of pain and brokenness that this this gender fluidity is creating. It's a spirit of death behind it all, right? Because it's, it's, it's not from Jesus. And you could preach it with kindness and love and mercy and humility, right? But the church is virtually silent, especially, I should say, the popular church is virtually silent. We're no, we're, we've, we've exchanged the prophetic church for the popular church. And we're virtually silent on an issue that actually brings a lot of life. Well, it brings a lot of life to kids that are struggling with tremendous confusion, guilt, shame. Um, lies of the enemy, but because it crosses the line of cultural acceptance, then we go, well, I'm not willing to jeopardize my influence, the offering, my friendships. I'm not willing to jeopardize those things for the sake of a truth that is just as true biblically as the things that we have celebrated. Are you with me on that? Really important. Wycliffe goes, no. Praise God that Wycliffe said No. Because his crisis turned into another opportunity. And this was the second major one of his life. He lost all influence 
He was relegated to total obscurity. He moved to a small town. Uh, nobody would uh, invite him to speak any longer. Uh, he lost his teaching influence. And because of it, he turned that, that crisis into an opportunity, kicked the door down on the crisis. And the door that he walked through was, I'm going to spend the rest of my life translating the scriptures into English, the first English translation in human history. Pressure from Rome increased. Wycliffe grew bolder. The university finally felt they could no longer defend him. Oxford cut him off in 1380. He lost all of his influence. He was pressured to conform but refused to trade the truth for his influence. And uh, I already kind of gave you a little bit on that. Wycliffe moved to an obscure town where it seemed he had lost his voice and purpose. However, he soon realized this might be the greatest opportunity he had ever been given. He turned towards what would become his most important task, the translating of the Bible into English, the language of the people. Several of his Oxford friends left Oxford with him. Love that, guys. You've just got to love that. Jonathan and his armor bearer to the end. The posse of faithful. It's the Clapham sect. It's William Wilberforce and his squad. All throughout history, you see this. They joined him. They dedicated themselves day and night with urgency to the task of the translating scripture. It's generally believed that Wycliffe translated the entire New Testament, New Testament by himself while he oversaw the work of the Old Testament with his friends that joined him. It was considered heresy to translate the Bible into the language of the people. Heresy. It was condemned public known heresy to translate the scriptures into the language of the people in the Catholic Church. No one spoke Latin, which was the primary language. Therefore, no one can read scripture. One of Wycliffe's biggest adversaries said this about him. I love this quote. That pestilent and most wretched John Wycliffe, of damnable memory, a child of the old devil, and himself a child or pupil of the Antichrist. This is what he says of Wycliffe, and listen why. Who who while he lived, walking in the vanity of his mind with a few other adjectives, adverbs, and verbs, like things he wanted to say about him, which I shall not give, he crowned his wickedness by translating the scriptures into the mother tongue of the people. Wow. <laughs> he crowned his wickedness. And I love the use of the exact phrase here by translating the scriptures into the mother tongue of the people, his crowning wickedness, the translation of the Bible into the English language, which is the only reason we have the scriptures in English today, <laughs> is because of this man, right? Sounds like Lauren Cunningham, doesn't it? Tr the fight that every mother tongue would have the scriptures. Lauren continuing on the tradition of Wycliffe, but I love this. He literally, this is written by a Catholic priest. This is how much they hated him for translating the scriptures. 1832, Wycliffe's original accuser finally gained the position of prominence he desired. He was now the Archbishop of Canterbury, which before it was an Anglican term, as a Catholic term. So now this man's in power. He immediately used his position to go after Wycliffe, called a council, condemned all of Wycliffe's works as heretical. All of his writings were to be seized. All of his poor preachers were to be silenced and, if not, imprisoned. Any student caught studying Wycliffe from this time on was immediately expelled from Oxford University. So they, they went to the great extents to completely silence all of Wycliffe's influence. His writings were burnt. His poor preachers were imprisoned. And if any student was caught reading anything he had written, they were immediately expelled. In 1832, this is providential as well, because God's obviously leading the history parade. The King of England married Anne of Bohemia. Bohemia is modern-day Czech Republic and Slovakia, which used to be Czechoslovakia and are now two nations. That was Bohemia. Mostly, it's, it's modern-day Czech. 
Because of this, Bohemian students started to attend Oxford because of the marriage of English royalty and Bohemian royalty. All these Bohemians came to Oxford, and they began to secretly study the works of Wycliffe at the risk of, lose, of being kicked out of the university. Most famous to them was a man named Jerome of Prague, who once he went back to the teachings, uh, went uh, once he studied these teachings, went back to Prague, where he began to disperse the illegal teachings of Wycliffe, and they landed in the hands of a young priest named John Huss, who became the pre the predecessor to Martin Luther. But the seeds of the Reformation land in Huss's heart because of the illegal study of Wycliffe's teachings on Oxford University because of a, brave a few brave students. Wycliffe could not be silenced. Within a few years, his teachings had exploded in Bohemia and soon all over the world. 1384, Wycliffe died of a stroke. He had two strokes over a two-year period. Second one killed him. First version of the Bible was completed shortly before he died. Revision of that Bible came shortly after by his followers, and it was named the Wycliffe Bible the first English translation in human history. 1408, 24 years after his death, a Catholic council was convened where Wycliffe was once and for all condemned a heretic. All of his works were to be confiscated and burned immediately. His bones were exhumed from his grave. They were dug up, they were burned, and the ashes were sprinkled into the river as a way of trying to completely rid the world of Wycliffe's influence. Thomas Fuller, a theologian of Wycliffe's day, said this about him. They burnt his bones to ashes and they cast him in the River Swift. It was the name of the river. A neighboring brook running nearby the church. Thus this brook conveyed his ashes into the Avon River. Avon into the Severn River. Severn into the Narrow Seas. And there from the Narrow Seas into the main ocean. And this, the ashes of Wycliffe, are the main emblem of his doctrine, which is now dispersed all over the world. And just as his ashes were spread through the ocean, so were his doctrines spread throughout the world because of the, his work and then the later Reformation. Printing press was created in 1450. One of the first books that began to mass produce all over the world was the Wycliffe English Bible. Soon the Bible was being mass produced, spread all over the world. This became the seedbed for the Reformation and the beginning of the Bible transformation movement. 1942, fast forward hundreds of years, 500 years after the, the, the writing of, uh, of the Bible, uh, the English Bible, William Townsend starts Wycliffe Bible translators to finish what Wycliffe started so that every language on earth would have the scriptures in their mother tongue, which now we get to be a part of Wycliffe's legacy. We are continuing on the work of Wycliffe in the 13 and 1400s. Three primary applications, and we'll do five minutes of questions or discussion on this. Every crisis is an opportunity if you allow it to be. Every crisis. You think it's the end of your influence. It's actually the beginning of your next chapter of life and your opportunity. This was Wycliffe. Make a bigger deal out of your life on faithfulness than flash. We've made a big deal out of flash. Flash is nothing in the scope of history. What matters in the scope of history is faithfulness. That's number two. Number three, I already said it, so I won't say it much longer. Never give in to the temptation to bend a few areas to placate the masses, or to save your own influence. Never jeopardize truth for the sake of influence. If you jeopardize the truth in the end, it will hinder your influence to actually change history. Those are three lessons of Wycliffe's life. Okay, thoughts, questions, anything? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, applications? Yep, no, for sure. 
First one is your every crisis in life is an opportunity if you allow it to be. So you just take it, whether it's bankruptcy, whether it's the business you started ended, whether it's you get kicked out of a nation that you had a visa for, whether it's like you lost all your influence, whatever it happens in your life, don't see the crisis as a dead end. It is an opportunity if you allow God to redeem the situation. Even our human failures, if we allow God to redeem them, can become a massive open door to future opportunity. Number two is make a bigger deal out of faithfulness than flash. We've made a huge deal out of flash. None of you are just, and this is okay, none of you in this room probably are following no-name faithful pastors from country churches in Midwest America. Some of you, I don't know who, I don't know your habits, and it, it doesn't, I'm not condemning this, but some of you are certainly following people purely because they're popular. A musician, an actor, a pastor, a leader, and their popularity is what caused you to follow them. I want to tell you, don't follow flash. Follow faithfulness. And what you follow is what you'll pattern your life after. Don't make your heroes actors, people who pretend to be someone else all day, don't really deserve your greatest allegiance. It's, not, it's, it's great. It's a skill like any other skill, but it's not a skill better than any other skill. And it certainly doesn't make their political views better than someone else's political views. It doesn't make their moral views better than anyone else's views. Guys, just because someone's really good at a sport does not mean they're more right. It's a skill. It's a great skill like any other skill, but that's, their, their athleticism does not make them more true. Today, we allow flash to influence us more than faithfulness. Let faithfulness be what influences your life. That's number two. Questions, thoughts as we wrap up on Wycliffe. Hey, look at this shirt today as you're thinking about your questions. Someone gave this to me in, uh, in um, Orange County. I was just there last week. And it's, a, it's a, a Zach Nash, who's the lead CRX there, good friend, made it. This is an original circuit rider drawing of a circuit rider with an umbrella and the pouring rain and a drenched horse. Uh, it says the circuit rider preacher at the bottom because they were known to go anywhere for the gospel no matter the weather. I, I, man, I was like so inspired. He gave me the shirt. And, I, and then reading about Wycliffe, I go, well, we need to make a bigger deal about these heroes in history, right? We need a few Wycliffe shirts because this guy had also had a bossy beard, man. This thing was massive. Incredibly, in incredible beard. A couple minutes, thoughts or questions. Let, let me do this. I want three people to hit me with what most hit you. Tell us what struck you out of this. What's striking you out of the story of John Wycliffe? Right there. Three people, at least that. Then we'll wrap up because I know you got something else. Uh, that he literally, like, didn't matter the cost of, like, what he was going to, like, he was, he was willing to lay it all down just, like, for the truth to be revealed and stuff and just, yeah. like, be so faithful and stuff, basically. Like, he didn't matter, like... If he lost his image, his friends, or anything like that, but he was still going to go after the, the truth and basically the glory of God. Yeah, that's good. That's super good. Yeah, right, uh, or Cam, and then we'll go over there. Yep. Yeah, well, uh, I like how he didn't, like, jeopardize it at all. Like, he didn't water the truth down at yeah. all. You get me? Like, he he said what was the truth, and he didn't, like, say this is friends. Like, say this is my boy. You get me? And I'm, like, telling the truth. And he like, oh, I don't really believe what you're saying. I'm not your friend no more. <laughs> he didn't change that up just because, you get me, people thought. so. Super good. And we don't have to be mean about the truth. But we just should never apologize for the truth. Right? We don't got to be the guy out on the street with a big sign saying, like, turn or burn. Do you know what I mean? 
But we should never apologize or just kind of push the truth aside to try and keep influence. Yeah, where's the mic? Yes. Yeah, so he f- like he was not afraid to be hated. Yeah, like that that's is not right. a comfortable feeling. No, like, everyone turned against him at one point, and he just still wasn't afraid to be hated. That's he right. He wasn't going to like slow down or turn back. Um, and he like got his full truth out of the scripture. Like, yes. Like he didn't let anyone have access into his that's right. theology. Just that's right. Scripture. So Come on, that's, that's really so cool. good, really good. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Question. Um, what you said, uh, his like, I I didn't get this part, but like, where was Wycliffe's teachings in like papers or like anything he like st- stood for? You said Oxford; it wasn't allowed. Like, yep. what were some other places? That, well, like, basically, they... so when he st- when he started, the only way to popularize your teachings is they he would hand write them, and they they literally would just pass them around, right. and then people would copy them. You know, so then it'd be like pamphlets. So they were in circulation. Mm-hmm. So they, in popular culture, they would have been circulated among the people, read to the people, and that's when they condemned him. They gathered everything they could find and they burnt them. Mm-hmm. But anyone who held on to those things secretly. They they were still reading them. They were still studying them. Yeah. So it, they got into popular culture, but nothing like when the printing press was established. Then you had mass media for the first time in history. Okay. Well, Lord, make us more like John Wycliffe. Amen. Amen. All right. Have a great day, guys. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you're blessed by this message. For more on revival and reformation, stay right here on the Wild and Kona podcast.